We're going to be in chapters 11 and 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you're certainly welcome to use the black pew Bibles in front of you. And you're also welcome to take that Bible home. If you remember, we're walking through the book of Hebrews in five sermons. So we're taking very big chunks at a time, which means that there's going to be a lot of stuff in this morning's text, which we read together. Our sister Amber read for what seemed like forever. Uh, But there's going to be a lot of stuff that we read that is not going to be touched on, okay? We're looking at a very high overview of the text. So let's talk about running. Oh, how I loathe running. Uh, Every marathon runner knows what it's like to want to quit the race, right? No matter how hard they've trained, they know what it's like to hit, I don't know where it is, it's different for every runner, but to hit that place during the race where you have to wrestle with that inner demon that tells you to just stop running. In order to run 26.2 miles, which is the distance of a marathon, you have to prepare yourself uh, for some very serious suffering. Blisters on your feet, chafing all over your body, dehydration, muscle soreness, joints locking up, muscle spasms, diarrhea, not to mention the tremendous emotional stress that goes into running for that long. Now, as grueling as a marathon can be, some people, and I like to think of them as crazy people, they do these things called ultra marathons, where they run 100 miles or more over the course of several days. In events like these, it's not uncommon for racers to lose all of their toenails, to get stress fractures in all of the tiny bones of their feet, to experience GI bleeding, and in extreme cases, to get something called compartment syndrome, where basically your muscle says, I can't take this, and it swells, and you have to go get it cut open. Uh, I, in my own life, try not to run more than a mile at a time, you know, two at most. I think that's a good life philosophy. Um, But millions of people all over the world and for uh, a good chunk of human history have chosen to spend so much of their time, their free time, uh, running very, very long distances. And I don't know why. Some people are just crazy and there's no explanation for it. One big advantage of being a long-distance runner, if you are a Christian, is that you will understand this morning's text at an experiential level. You will understand this morning's text in a way that people like me can never understand. Uh, This morning's text talks about the Christian life, the Christian experience, our journey towards heaven, like a marathon, like an endurance race. So you can see that at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the race that he's talking about here is not a a sprint. It's not the 100-meter dash. It's not even a mile run. He's talking about something that's longer something that's more gruesome, something that requires a tremendous amount of endurance. If you think about your life from the moment you become a Christian and get saved until the time that Jesus calls you home, uh, no matter how long that may be 
in God's perfect providence, it still feels like a very long time. Now, the furthest I have ever run is five miles, and I hated every second of it. Uh, I remember feeling like I was going to come apart around the three-mile mark. Uh, My legs were burning. My thirst was insane. I had stopped sweating, which is never a good sign in the middle of a workout. Um, And all I wanted to do in the whole world was quit, but I couldn't. The reason why is uh, this was in the army and our unit was running around a very large airfield. And so the only way to stop running was to get all the way around the field. So I just, I couldn't quit. There was no Michael Scott option. I couldn't have the taxi come pick me up halfway through the race. Now that feeling of wanting to give up, needing to give up, feeling like you just can't go any further, That is what so many of us experience in this Christian life as we try to make it to heaven. That feeling of wanting to quit is exactly what the audience of the book of Hebrews is experiencing as they suffer persecution for the sake of Jesus' name. And these Christians, this, this audience to the book of Hebrews, they have suffered so much, they are on the verge of giving up. They are just ready to give it all up and to go back to the temple and to go back to the sacrifices and to go back to the law and to go back to the priesthood. And the author of Hebrews knows that. And so he talks to them like a coach might talk to an athlete who's on the verge of giving up and quitting the race. So look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Just imagine the high school track coach or football coach or wrestling coach saying these words, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather may be healed. I see you. I can tell you're starting to fall apart. Get it together. We have to make it to the finish line. The author of Hebrews wants his audience to finish the race. And friends, that is what I want for every single person that is a Christian in this room this morning. That's what I want most for my own soul. So, what is the author of Hebrews going to tell his audience to get them across the finish line? What is God going to tell you through his word this morning that is going to get you across the finish line? Well, I've got four points for you this morning, note takers. In order to finish the race, we must embrace the pain. In order to finish the race, we must avoid distractions. In order to finish the race, we must study tape. And in order to finish the race, we must keep our eyes on the prize. If you didn't get all of those, I'll give them to you again as we walk through. Let me say a brief prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, use this time right now, right here this morning. Use your word. Use me as as imperfect and as broken and as much of a sinner as I am. Lord, use your Holy Spirit to empower us, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to make it across that line. In your son's name we pray, amen. Point number one, embrace the pain. Uh, When we think about discipline, we tend to think about 
negative reinforcement, right? We tend to think about pain, right? The drill sergeant gets you to stop doing that by making you work out for an hour. Your parents get you to stop doing things you're not supposed to do by spanking you. Or if you're in a more progressive household, by telling you to do whatever you want to do. No, I don't know. But we think about negative reinforcement. But when the author of Hebrews is talking about discipline, he's talking about something that is much more holistic. He's referring to both the positive and negative aspects of development and formation. And you can see this if you compare uh, verse 8 of chapter 12 with verse 11. So in verse 8 he says, If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So he's talking about discipline there. Now if you go on to verse 11, he says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, right? So there is a training that is happening with discipline. Now, for God's people, discipline is what God uses to train us for godliness, okay? Now, uh, these verses tell us a couple of different things about discipline. Number one, in verse 11, which we just read together, it tells us that discipline is just not pleasant, right? I have to believe this when my kids are giving me the sad eye as I'm disciplining them, you know? It's not pleasant for them in the moment, but this leads us to our next thing that this text tells us. Uh, I trust that it brings about the fruit of righteousness. And that's what discipline is designed to do also from verse 11. And even in verse 10, right? We see that uh, in verse 10, we're told that discipline allows us to share in God's holiness. In verse 11, we see that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Just like the athlete who focuses and, and struggles and suffers and receives discipline, the way that he will become a better athlete through that, we too become more holy and like our Father in heaven through discipline. We also see in verse 6 that discipline is a sign of God's love. It says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. I think this last aspect of discipline is particularly important for the Christians who are being addressed in this letter, uh, who in light of their suffering might be tempted to doubt God's love for them. Isn't that the way that we tend to think about things in, in an overly binary way? We think that if everything is going well in our lives, then God must be pleased with us, right? And uh, that's dangerous, right? Because uh, Satan could be certainly setting you up for a big fall there. He could be allowing you to prosper and he, be, he could be allowing you to be blessed in a thousand different ways that make you feel, that's kind of the story of half the books of the Old Testament that we've read when we just got through with Amos. All the people in Israel thought all of their prosperity was because God was pleased with them and it wasn't. But in the same way, we can think that if we're suffering or if we're having to go through some kind of trial, that God is not pleased with us. We can begin to believe the lie that maybe God doesn't love us. Have you been there? But that's not true at all. According to the author of Hebrews, in some situations, in certain contexts, but always for the children of God, suffering, which is a kind of discipline, is actually evidence that God very much loves us because he's treating us like his son. And no son has a father who loves him who doesn't receive discipline. He doesn't want these Hebrew Christians to feel condemned because of their suffering. He wants them to feel confirmed. 
He wants you to feel the same way. I don't know what you're going through this morning. I think I know what a lot of people in this church are going through this morning, but I don't know what everybody's going through. But if you're suffering, or if you have suffered tremendously, and you've begun to wonder if God loves you, well, friend, the answer is yes, he does. And it could be that the suffering that he's allowing you to go through is actually the greatest sign of his love that you could possibly imagine, even if it doesn't feel good in the moment. You think about a coach who rides an athlete extra hard, you know, do it again, and this time do it right. Hit another lap or another sprint or another rep. Stand up straight. Get your hands off your knees. Quit being lazy. You know, that athlete in that moment might feel like the coach doesn't care about him very much, but what a lot of coaches will tell you is that they tend to ride the athletes that they believe in more harder than everybody else because they see the potential in them. Now, it can be difficult to trust in this process of discipline because it is a process. At least humanly speaking, it can be incredibly difficult. For starters, uh, some of the people in this life that discipline us, like coaches and parents and teachers, they abuse their authority. So that coach that's riding you extra hard, that's making you do wind sprints until you puke, that seems like he's treating you worse than everybody else, well, he actually may be treating you worse than everyone else. He may actually not like you. He may be using his authority to crush you. If you ever experienced that, it's quite unpleasant. Isn't it often the case that those who are supposed to use their authority to train us up for godliness, who are supposed to, even if you're thinking about a non-Christian example, who are supposed to train us up with discipline, isn't it true that they often cross the line from discipline into abuse? And even when you think about the best of those who discipline us in this life, they're just humans. They're just like us. You know, they're just doing what they think is best, and sometimes what they think is best is actually the worst. They only know what they've seen, what they've experienced, right? How many men have you heard talk about their dads and, you know, yeah, he was a cold, hard man, and, but he only was doing what he knew. He only did what his dad did to him. But the discipline of God is not like the training from a coach or from a teacher or from a parent. Look at verse 10. Speaking of our earthly parents, and you can substitute anyone else who does discipline there, it says, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. You see the difference there? One is just doing what they think is best, but with God, it's always the best. There is no bad discipline from God. There is no such thing as abusive discipline from God. There's no such thing as over-discipline or uh, under-quality discipline. I mean, just think about quantity, for example. Some coaches think that the best way to get results from their athletes is to crush them in the dust, right? Regardless of whether you're talking about the weight room or on the mats or out on the field, uh, the best way to get the results is to just grind these young athletes into the dirt. But the best coaches know that there is a quantity balance. The best coaches know that to to, to ask too much of your athlete is just as dangerous as to ask too little. Too much stimulation can be just as bad as too little. But our Father in heaven, he always gives us the proper quantity. Think about quality, for example. 
It is not uncommon for high school football coaches to know absolutely nothing about the stuff that they're training their kids for. You know, I mean, uh, one of the easiest examples of this is high school fo- football coaches are known to tell their, their guys in the weight room to not squat below parallel. You don't want to squat below parallel, you'll destroy your knees. That's the worst squat advice ever. ever. You want to go as low in the squat as you can possibly go. Now, I'm not going to talk about squatting for much longer, so bear with me. Uh, the point is, is that the coach, because he's the coach, he's seen as the subject matter expert. But the reality is, is that he doesn't really know what he's talking about there. And his discipline is a low quality discipline. But it's not like that with God. He is the subject matter expert on all things. His knowledge is complete and is not lacking in any way. So, if we want to make it across the finish line, we have to embrace the pain of discipline. And one of the ways that we can embrace that pain is we can trust that the discipline that comes from God is always good discipline. Point number two, in order to finish the race, we must study tape. Do you know what sets world-class athletes apart from the rest? It's their mind, their brain, the way that they use it. The world has no shortage of genetically gifted athletes, men and women who can run and swim and jump and move and cut like well-oiled machines. Some of the guys sitting here, they're like, yeah, that's right. Say that, Sean, that's me. But what is rare, however, is to find the natural athlete who's also willing to train the mind as much as they train the body. One of the main ways that world-class athletes train their minds is by studying the greats. So studying those who came before them. Kobe studied Michael Jordan relentlessly. Tiger Woods studied Jack Mickelson. Mike Tyson studied Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. And the examples could just be multiplied, right? In the days of the New Testament, tape didn't exist. There's no way to go back and to study those who endured suffering But that doesn't mean that the author of Hebrews doesn't want them to consider those who ran the race before them. And that's what all of chapter 11 is about. Chapter 11 is the analog, the the very, very, very analog version of studying tape. So go back to chapter 10 real quick with me. Chapter 10, verse 39. So uh, up to this point, the author of Hebrews has talked a lot about shrinking back, falling away, giving up your confession of faith and and he doesn't want them to do that okay and so he says but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls and so all of chapter 11 is the contrast to what he was just talking about in chapter 10 he wants to show you examples of these spiritual athletes who didn't shrink back who weren't destroyed but who actually persevered in the midst of suffering through their faith. And all of chapter 11 is just example after example after example of those who persevered through faith. Now, an athlete needs a lot of things in order to persevere in competition, right? They need resilience, skill, the right attitude. They need timing, strategy. But I think one of the most important things that an athlete needs in order to succeed is a deep-seated trust that he has done everything that he can possibly do in order to win. 
The Christian, however, needs one main thing in order to persevere, in order to finish the race. He needs faith. Now, faith is a word that isn't really in vogue these days, and that's partly because it's a word that's just largely misunderstood. When we think about the word faith, we usually think of images of TV preachers telling you that if you have enough faith and send in X amount of dollars, then God will bless you with X amount of blessings. Or we think about fairy tales or naive promises from self-help gurus. If you just have enough faith and believe it, you can achieve it. Right? That's how we think about faith in our modern minds. But in the Bible, faith is actually a much more robust term. It is stout. I like to think about the word faith as being load-bearing. For your note-takers, here you go. Here's your, your one-sentence definition, okay? Faith is trusting in God's promises. That's the simple pocket-sized definition of faith. Could we add more to it? Certainly. Is that good enough to just walk around with and to really understand the essence of faith? Yeah. Faith is trusting in God's promises. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that he will therefore do which he has, that which he has promised to do. Now this, this aspect of faith that I'm about to talk about next is very important, so pay attention. Faith is trusting in that which has been revealed, not believing in the invisible or taking a leap into the dark. So it's trusting in that which has been revealed, not believing, which is just some other version of like taking a leap into the dark. Uh, You can see this summary from chapter 11, verse 1. If you go there, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, that one statement right there, that, that one little definition in chapter 11, verse 1, if you read it Uh, by itself, it can actually seem like what we said is the opposite of the definition of faith. But that's why you always have to read a verse in its context, right? The context of chapter 11 is the hero's hall of faith. And what do we have in the hero's hall of faith? Well, we have a bunch of really imperfect people who persevered through faith. But what did they have faith in? What were they trusting in? Well, they were trusting in the promises of God. God had revealed himself to them and he had made promises to them and they trusted in those promises even though it seemed like those promises weren't going to be fulfilled in their lifetime. Uh, Maybe taking this concept and seeding it in a different realm might make it more clear for you. So let's let's think about this concept uh, in political terms. Everybody knows it's good to get political in the church, so here goes. Uh, The great promise of socialism is that if it is properly implemented, it will produce a utopia, a land where everything is just how it's supposed to be. But in the meantime, there must be suffering. That's just part of it, you know. You got to crack a couple eggs to make an omelet. There will be bloodshed. Most socialist ideologues believe in a dialectic vision of human history. You don't have to know what that means, but they believe that there's like this pendulum that swings back and forth and it's leading us inevitably towards this perfect state where utopia will exist. And yet, thousands, millions of socialists have died without seeing anything close to a utopian state but most of them died believing that it was still possible. 
How many tens of millions of people have to die in China and Russia, Venezuela, the world over before people start believing that socialism isn't true? Don't know, because part of the socialist belief is that even if we don't see it in our lifetime, we trust that this is the process that will work. So they died believing the promises even though they never saw them fully realized. That's what faith is like. That's just an evil anti gospel version of faith. That's faith in all of the wrong things. But faith is believing in something that has been revealed, even if you haven't seen it come to its full and final iteration. You think about this reality of faith, and uh, what I love is when I talk to unbelievers or skeptics of Christianity, and they act like faith is a pejorative. You know, they treat it like a cuss word, and they act like they don't live uh, with faith in their lives. But that's not true. You see, the way that God has designed the world to exist is that we are finite creatures and that in order for us to have any kind of functionality in this world, we all have to operate on certain assumptions of faith. You see this all the time with seatbelts. The reason why you put on a seatbelt, not just because it's the law, but also because you believe that the seatbelt will reduce your risk of injury in a car accident. Well, how do you know that? Well, you take it on faith from people who have done the studies and the crash test dummies flying through the windows and the seatbelts and the, you know, you take it on faith. You read a book, you believe what the author says about certain events that happened in history. Well, how do you know that those events that he said happened, happened the way that they actually happened? Well, you don't. You just kind of look at his credentials and you, you, you say, I'm going to trust this guy. I'm going to believe this guy. Some of the most famous philosophers in the world uh, made a career. They made their name by, by trying to show us that we really can't even trust in anything, not even our senses. That shouldn't really be troubling for us because, well, yeah, do I, can I believe that the sun is going to rise tomorrow? Well, not really. I just kind of have to take it on faith because that's what's happened in the past. My point is, is that everyone lives with some kind of need to believe in something that they haven't actually seen with their own eyes. Now, before moving on, I want to address something that could be seen as uh, uh, confusing at, at best, maybe a contradiction at worst, and I, I think it would be pretty silly to assume that second thing because uh, I just don't think that a guy this careful would contradict himself in the space of a couple of paragraphs. But in chapter 11, verse 1, it says that faith is a conviction of things not seen. Now, if you flip on over to verse 13 of chapter 11, maybe you don't have to flip, he says, uh, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. Well, which is it? Is faith believing without seeing, or is it seeing them? Well, I think that the simplest way to understand this is just in English, we use the same word in different ways sometimes, sometimes with even this, within the space of the same couple of paragraphs in order to drive home a point, right? Um, so you think about Moses when he saw the promised land, right? He saw it at a distance, but he was not able to enter into the promised land, okay? He saw it, but he didn't really see it. And I think you see this kind of idea fleshed out when you continue reading verse 13. It says, not having seen them, and greeted them from afar, right? I think that's the idea communicated here. They could see it, but they couldn't really see it. And I think that this makes perfect sense when you understand the shadow image that we've been talking about throughout the entire book of Hebrews. You remember the book of Hebrews is all about shadows and types, right? All these things in the Old Testament, they were all shadows pointing forward to the reality of Jesus 
Christ. So in the same way that you can look at a man's shadow and see him, you're not really seeing him, right? But you see enough of him to believe that that man actually exists, even if you don't see his actual flesh and blood body. The men and women of the Old Testament, they saw the faint shadow of the glory of Christ and all the promises of the gospel. And they saw enough of him to believe and to trust and to persevere, even though they never saw the man himself, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and all the promises of the gospel fully realized. And that's what chapter 11, verse 3 through 38 is all about. Uh, At some point in the future, as a church, we may come back and walk through each one of these examples individually, but for now, I just want you to understand the way that the author of Hebrews is using them. He's not holding them up as examples and saying, these guys were perfect, and you need to try harder and be more like them. No. There's all kinds of sinners in here. I mean, I don't think there's anyone on this list here who was not shot through with sin. The point is, is that a bunch of broken, messed up, screwed up, sinful people can still please God and persevere and make it to heaven by faith. That's the point. And that should be tremendously encouraging for the people in this room. I know it is for me. Now, as these Jewish Christians are experiencing suffering and persecution for following Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, don't look at your life and circumstances. Study those who came before you and who persevered. Look to see how they made it. You're tired. Your knees are weak. You're getting ready to give up. And you don't want to give up, but you feel like you don't have any other choice. How can you persevere? Well, look at, look at the way the rest of these very human people persevered. You do what they did. That is trust, believe. Believe that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he has promised to do. Point number three. In order to finish the race, we must avoid distractions. We must avoid distractions. Since uh, Seth is visiting us this morning and we're a small church doing small church things, I'm going to talk about him in front of everybody. I'm going to use him as an illustration. Uh, Seth started training jujitsu about six months after me, and for the first couple of months on the mats, uh, I beat him up pretty good. Good times, good times. Uh, These days, Seth is a serious problem for me on the mat. Uh, He has gotten really good really fast, and he closed the the gap on that time difference uh, almost immediately. And for that reason, I pray that Seth would, uh, you know, get into a car accident or (laughs) get run over by a moose or, I don't know. I pray sometimes that Seth would get a girlfriend, you know. Now, why do I pray that Seth would get a girlfriend? Well, because love can be one of the greatest distractions for a rising star right? We know that whether it's true love or a soap opera-esque affair, romance can be a disaster for rising prospects. Now, why is that? Well, it's because they're a distraction. The athlete could be spending a little extra time studying tape, working on his technique, but instead he wants to spend it with you, my little honey bunch. Every athlete who wants to be truly great will have to count the cost of that greatness. And quite often that means eliminating any potential distraction from their lives. It means giving up things that other people freely enjoy, from the food that they eat to the amount of sleep that they get to the kind of relationships that they have. Being a world-class athlete demands that you go to great lengths 
to avoid impediments to your performance. Now, the author of Hebrews draws on this reality in chapter 12, verse 1. Go back there with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and by the way, that's from chapter 11. He's saying, look at all these people, these saints who came before us. Look at their example. They're like a cloud of witnesses. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Get rid of anything and everything that would slow you down, that would keep you from running this race. Now, because evangelicals can tend to be prudes sometimes, uh, some of the explanations for uh, what it means to lay aside every weight uh, are kind of silly. One uh, guy I read said, I think he means cutting weight, trying to shed all the extra body fat before the race. People in ancient Greece didn't do that, okay? Uh, What he's talking about is getting naked, okay? Running in the buff. The racers who want to win, starting around 700 BCs, they would have uh, stripped down into the nude in order to run as fast as they possibly could. Some interpreters understand this weight here in chapter 12, verse 1, uh, to be the same thing as the sin, which he mentions right after it, that clings so closely. Some people understand them to be two separate things. You know, maybe one thing is sin, the other thing is just anything else that might get in the way. I think I lean towards that second uh, interpretation, and I think the, the point is clear. Uh, we have to get rid of anything and everything that will slow us down. So, you know, ancient Greek runners abandoned their clothes in the run. Modern swimmers shave every last follicle of hair off their body so that they can be more swift in the water. Uh, You just got to give up what you got to give up in order to win. Maybe one day they'll shave off their eyebrows as well. Um, When we lived in Peru, uh, I decided to climb a volcano because, hey, how many times in life are you going to have the opportunity to climb a volcano? So we were surrounded by three volcanoes. I picked the middle one. Boom. Misty. Okay, 19,000 feet uh, in height in the state of Arequipa. And uh, as I was preparing to climb this uh, volcano, I thought I packed pretty light. Uh, I packed some snacks, some water, a lot of water, an extra sweater, and my camera. And uh, it weighed about 20 pounds. My load weighed about 20 pounds. And at that time, I weighed about 220 pounds. So relative to my body weight, that seemed like a pretty light load. You know, I'm a big, strong, strapping guy. That shouldn't be a problem. Well, about a quarter of the... Did somebody laugh when I said that? I said I'm a big, strong, strapping guy. Somebody laughed. That's what I thought. And handsome. About a quarter of the way up the mountain, uh, I began to have some pretty serious doubts about the load in my backpack, you know. I was trying to drink as much water and eat as much of the snacks as I could so that I didn't have to carry it. About halfway up the mountain, I cursed myself for bringing that extra sweater. It was actually really hot on the side of the mountain, and uh, that two-pound sweater felt like it weighed a million pounds. And then about three-quarters of the way up, I realized that the three-pound camera and lens that I had with me was literally going to kill me. It was so heavy, that high with no oxygen. And that's, that's usually how we are, right? At the beginning of the journey, we feel fresh. We feel like we can bear more weight than we actually can. We think, that won't be a distraction. That, that thing that's clinging to me, it's not going to keep me from running this race the way that I think I need to. And then it does. It's amazing how heavy three pounds can be when you're carrying it up the side of a mountain with no oxygen. Or maybe you're part of the people where this reality doesn't set in 
and you don't cast aside the things that are weighing you down and you, you just quit. You just stop in the middle of the race. You give up halfway up the mountain because you just didn't want to give up whatever that thing is in your life. But those who are truly focused on making it to the top of the mountain or to the finish line, they will cast aside anything and everything that keeps them from going all the way. For me, I just couldn't throw my $1,000 camera down the side of the volcano, you know. Uh, but the camera wasn't really what kept me from making it to the top. If you must know, we were 100 vertical meters from the summit when storm clouds descended upon us and we had to rush down. It was a bummer. But, but what if it was? What if it was that camera that was keeping me from making it to the top? And what if my whole life's mission was to make it to the top of that mountain? What if I just couldn't bring myself to throw that camera down the side of the mountain? That's how so many of us treat so many things in this world. We are so foolish to be so utterly consumed with things that just don't matter. Things that seem like they're the most important things in the world to you right now, but then when you die, the second after you die, you will realize that those things did not matter at all. Physical pleasure, our appearance and health, our ambition, this guy, that girl, our career, a thousand other things that just don't matter. When in light of eternity, we should have a laser focus on getting to the finish line where we will receive our crown. That leads us to point number four. In order to finish the race, we must keep our eyes on the prize. Uh, most people don't realize that the Bible didn't originally come with chapter and verse uh, numbers. That came a couple hundred years later from some guys who were very kind with a lot of time on their hands. And uh, they actually did a surprisingly good job. You think about how big the Bible is and how complicated it can be. I think they did a pretty good job with, with what, what we have. Uh, but sometimes it's not right. And I think one of the places where the chapter divisions kind of breaks up the flow of thought is right here in chapter 11 and 12. So all of chapter 11 is this Hebrews heroes of the faith, right? The hall of faith. And then you think, okay, you get to the end of it. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, but the greatest and final example, the one who's greater than Moses, the one who's greater than Abraham, the one that's greater than Rahab the prostitute, the one who's greater than everyone in chapter 11 is the one that we begin to talk about in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by all these witnesses in chapter 11, let us run hard, let us lay aside every weight, let us, all that stuff, and then verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he's not somebody who had to exercise faith in order to make it to the finish line. He is the founder and perfecter of faith. But nevertheless, he who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the same way that all these people from chapter 11 had to believe the promises of God that were made to them in the past and look forward to the promise of joy that was awaiting them in the future. And they had to do that while they were suffering. Jesus had to do that. 
And he is the greatest example. He is the final example. Everyone in chapter 11 is messed up, sinful, broken, fallen, rebellious. But Jesus, he persevered perfectly in complete obedience. Go back to chapter 11, verse 25 real quick. talking about those who suffered for the faith. It says, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God uh, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, he's talking about Moses here, but this is a principle that runs throughout the entire chapter. Choosing to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. All of the saints of old even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself, as a man, had to make a choice. Would they embrace fleeting pleasures or would they embrace suffering and suffering with God's people? Friends, I want you to know that this is your choice as well. It is the choice of every single person who professes to be a Christian. Are you going to choose temporary pleasure Or are you going to choose eternal joy? If you choose eternal joy, then you will experience suffering here and now, right? And that's not uh, something that like maybe might happen, could happen. Maybe you're one of the 0.5% of the people uh, who will experience these side effects of the medication. No, it is a promise of the gospel. All those who will reign with him must suffer with him. And it won't be easy. It's a very difficult thing to cast aside every weight. And if you don't really know how difficult it is, maybe you're living your Christian life without trying to cast aside every weight. You're just kind of embracing whatever feels right to you, whatever feels good in the moment. But if you don't know the burn, the pain, the struggle of casting aside sin and all the things of this world, then maybe you're not following Jesus as he has intended. Now, in some Christian circles, our big problem is often talked about in terms of our desires, right? It's often said that desire is, in fact, our problem. The reason why we're not faithful to our Lord, the reason why we won't make it to heaven is because we have all these pleasures, and we have to put our pleasures to death. We have to kill them. We have to crush them. We have to get rid of them. That's why Christians get drunk, you know, because they... They have too many pleasures. That's why Christians have illicit sex, get divorces, do all the other big sins that Christians do, right? But biblically speaking, that's not really right. Our problem is not that we seek pleasure. Our problem is that we don't seek pleasure enough. Now, this is uh, not my longest sermon, but we're, we're getting up there. So if you've begun to tune out, let me just kind of Pause, let's hit reset, draw everyone's attention back in, right? Focus on the glory here, okay? I just want to, I want you to make sure that you heard that last sentence and that you really, that you didn't just hear it, but that you heard it, right? We don't, our problem isn't that we seek pleasure, it's that we don't seek it enough. Our problem is that we don't seek the best kind of pleasure. We choose lesser temporary pleasures rather than permanent, glorious joy. Uh, C.S. Lewis, writing about this very phenomenon, says this. 
It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That warm body, that addiction, that food, that successful career, that that picturesque family that you've always wanted, those abs, none of these things will satisfy you forever. They can't even satisfy you here and now. The whole of our human existence is we try to find pleasure in something and we're like, yes, this is the best thing ever. I'm going to give my whole life to this. And then in a year or two years or five years, that pleasure dissipates and we move on to the next thing. As we run this race, Satan has set up stations all along the way. You know, I don't know if you've ever run like a 5K, but you know, they got the the thing there where you stop and you get your drink and you keep going and they're cheering you on. Well, Satan has stations like that set up too. And he is trying to get us to drop out of the race for the sake of these lesser fleeting pleasures. Instead of standing on the sidelines, encouraging, saying, yes, you can do this, keep going, keep going, the finish line is right there. He's standing there going, you know, there's, I got pizza over here. I got some tacos, you know, that's all. I don't know, man, that finish line is way off. I don't know if you're fit enough to make it. But I'll tell you what, it would feel really good to stop right now and take a bite of this meat lover's pizza from Papa John's with butter on the side. (laughs) You recognize this pattern all throughout the Bible, right? One of the first things that the enemy did to tempt Adam and Eve was to try to convince them that he had a pleasure for them that God was withholding from them. Don't you see this again in the second Adam? Not in a garden, but in the wilderness. Satan comes to tempt Jesus and he says, oh, I've got something for you. I can, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. He's basically saying, hey, you can have this kingdom instead of the heavenly kingdom that your father has for you for all of eternity. I want everyone this morning to understand one very important thing before you leave. The big final promise of the gospel for us as individuals, the thing that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we receive through repentance and faith, that the thing that that accomplishes for us is our eternal, abundant, incomprehensible joy. That is what we are looking forward to. That is the reason why Jesus saved us. He didn't save us so that we can go be a bunch of teetotalers in heaven. I don't know if alcohol is going to be there, but I know it's going to be a party. In Matthew 25, 23, Jesus says that the faithful servant, which I pray, I pray that I hear these words. I pray that you hear these words because we've been faithful. He says, enter into the joy of your master. I long for that day. This life is so hard so full of sadness and brokenness. We are so often fighting to be faithful. We're we're desperate to cling to the promises of God. 
And sometimes it seems like we're not gonna make it. But if we do, if we believe and trust that God is who he says he is, and that he's going to do what he has promised to do, we will have joy everlasting. And it will all be worth it. John 15, 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He doesn't want us to have a half-hearted joy. He doesn't want us to have a temporary fleeting joy. He wants us to have a full joy. And Jesus knows that it's going to be hard in the meantime. He understands that. He's not naive. He's the God of the universe. And he talks about that too. He says, truly, I say to you, which means, hey, pay attention. You will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. John 16, 20. That is the promise of the gospel for those who are suffering for the sake of Jesus. It's not that you won't suffer. And any Christian who tells you that you won't suffer is lying. Any pastor who tells you that you don't have to suffer is preaching a false gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, yes, you will suffer, but that suffering is not in vain. It will be turned into eternal joy. And this joy that God has prepared for those who love him, it cannot be lost. It cannot be taken away. Just like you can't earn it, you cannot lose it. John 16, 22, and no one will take your joy from you. How can you take joy from someone that God has given it to in his perfect sovereign power? And I wish I could uh, end the sermon right there, right? The good news of the gospel. Joy, joy, joy. Love, love, love. Do you remember my one-sentence summary of the book of Hebrews? Jesus is God's final word of salvation. So listen to Jesus. You see the final warning of the book in chapter 12, verse 25, where he really drives that point home. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned him, warned them on earth, that's Moses speaking to the Israelites, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Uh, the last few verses in this whole chapter that Amber read for us early, they picture God like a, a man taking the universe and shaking the cosmos until every rotten piece of this broken kingdom ruined by sin falls away so that only that which is holy remains. Now, in light of that future judgment, we are told in verse 28 to make sure that our worship is acceptable to God. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Sometimes I know that what we do on a Sunday morning here can feel kind of weird. It's like it always seems like it's a little heavy, not, not maybe as sprightly as some people have come to imagine church being. But this verse is part of the reason why. Friends, what we do here on a Sunday morning is a very weighty thing. We're coming into the presence of a holy and righteous God as sinners. And there's a lot of joy in that, but even that joy is a weighty joy. It's a reverent joy in light of this reality. And then verse 29 
tells us why our worship has to be this way. It says, for our God is a consuming fire. Yes, friends, God is love. But what do you think love is? Do you think love is just someone who has a big toothy grin on their face all the time? You think about your relationship with your children. Do you stop loving them when you discipline them? No. God is love, but he is a holy God. His love is a holy love. It's unlike anything that we know or anything that we have experienced. And it burns white hot. His love burns so hot that any unclean thing that comes into contact with it will be burnt up on contact. I know that this makes us uncomfortable. I know that this unsettles our modern sensibilities. It's the reason why preachers don't talk about hell. You know, let's just talk about all the good things that religion can do for society. Let's not talk about any of that old, archaic, wrath of God stuff. Friends, there is only one God. And he is either the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, or he is some other version. And if he is some other version, how do you know that the version that you believe in is the right version? Are you just trusting your own instincts? And if so, what makes you think that your sensibilities, that your intuitions and instincts are accurate, more accurate than what God has chosen to reveal about himself and his word? So as I close this sermon this morning, I can only hope that you haven't begun to tune me out because this promise of joy is not a promise for all men and women. It is a promise for every man and woman and child who has truly repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. If you don't know what that means, if you don't even know how to begin having that conversation and you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to come up and talk to me or uh, anyone really in the pews next to you, any member of this church. And I don't even know if that will have any impact on you this morning, but maybe it's a seed. Maybe it's a burr under your saddle. Maybe it's a pebble in your shoe. I hope this promise, this promise of joy and wrath sticks with you. I hope it keeps you up at night. I hope that you can't keep living your life the same way that you used to live it after hearing this message. And I hope that you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we love you. We know that we don't deserve your love, but you've loved us anyways. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you loved us with a great love. And so, Father, we respond to that love in praise. We pray that you would be honored, that you would receive our song as we sing to you, that you would receive it not based on our own righteousness, but based on your Son. We pray this in his name, amen.